Welcome to Vase, a podcast about weird stuff. I'm Peter C. Hine, and joining me as always is my good friend, co-host, and my very own six-foot imaginary or supernatural animal friend, Mr. Stephen James Buckley. Hello, everybody. I'm actually six foot one. He's a liar. Nobody cares. They do. So, they do care. <laughs> they do care. <laughs> so um, today we're talking about um, Donnie Darko, as my introduction hinted at. Um, it's for those who haven't watched it, I think go and watch it now because we're going to assume that anyone listening to this podcast has watched Donnie Darko. And we're going to also talk a bit about the director's cut as well. Um, which I mean, I don't know if I would necessarily recommend that people, uh, watch that. (laughs) No. If, if you enjoy Donnie Darko, then I guess you, if you want to spend another couple of hours on it, um, but uh, otherwise, um, you can just listen to this podcast and we will clear up what the director's cut is all about. Um, so uh, Donnie Darko, where do we start with that? It's a 2001 horror slash fantasy slash sci-fi slash comedy slash coming of age. Uh, it's a film that me and you, Buckley, have talked about a lot over the years. Yeah, and it's hard to it's hard to put it in a genre, isn't it? It's like, it really uh, is. I mean, like, because I, I find it kind of funny, but I find it kind of sad. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that sums it up. <laughs> and and um, so, it, what's weird about it, I guess, that we continue to talk about it into our dotage, into our middle age, <laughs> um, is that it's basically a film for teenagers, written by and directed by a guy who was barely into his mid twenties when he did it. Um, but still. This, Donnie Darko, was one of the first ideas for topics that we had when we were starting Vase, you know, like mm. a year ago, uh, because it's something that's obviously meant a lot to us. And we've been kicking this idea around for months, even now, uh, to, to get ready for doing it. Um, and I've been texting, you know how I love a good text message. Uh, mm. I've been texting you quite a lot about Donnie Darko and not just you, other people as well. You know, I've been expressing some quite forceful opinions about this movie. Uh, I've got very little actual insight but i do have a lot of opinions about it and i'm usually more kind of live and let live about especially films but this one seems to get me particularly impassioned so let's get straight into it then my first question to you buckley is Mm -hmm. donnie darko why does this film warrant a whole episode of vase being dedicated to it well i think if we uh if we think about what what vase is kind of to us and what what perhaps separates vase from uh, other podcasts that cover similar subject matter is that I think we probably go quite personal with stuff. Uh, yeah. We don't maintain a sort of professional distance. Uh, we, <laughs> we can't maintain we, a professional distance. We, we shan't maintain a professional distance. <laughs> we so won't maintain a professional I think, distance. I think like it was a film that we we both saw. Um, we saw in two thousand and two at the cinema together um, in Lancaster, where we went to school, where we went to high school. Yeah, and so it was. It was, I guess, it just had that kind of significance for us. It, it, it hit us at a time of our lives where, whilst we weren't teenagers, I kind of still was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were only about twenty, weren't we? Um, yeah, and we we decided to watch it on the recommendation of a friend. Um, and I think that, like at twenty, we were, like you say, I mean, we were. Or I, I can speak for myself, but I, I, I don't think you'll disagree that, like, I was quite a, uh, a like an immature twenty-year-old. You know, like I was still basically a teenager, as, as you said, really. And we were only a couple of years older than the protagonist actually is in Donnie Darko, and we were about the same age as Jake Gyllenhaal was when he starred in Donnie Darko. 
and we were also like both the kind of things that we were getting into um we were both kind of getting into david lynch and that sort of thing we talked quite a lot this week haven't we about uh, how it coincided with us getting into twin peaks yeah and um the, the course that i was doing at university at the time had a um a visual arts element to it so i was watching a lot of david lynch around that time as well you know a razor head and wild at heart um and um lost highway and and those sort of um uh, early earlier i suppose kind of earlier david lynch films yeah i mean i think it was a time when we were both kind of uh, i know that was around when i'd seen my first kind of lynch stuff as well and i think it was around a time when we were both kind of moving a bit outside of the um the kind of standard kind of alternative rock kind of thing in music and we were moving a bit more we were becoming a bit more open-minded and i guess yeah. it's like that thing isn't it where with donny darko it's almost like that one of those things almost a bit like fight club which is another one that i sort of associate with maybe a bit earlier but a similar sort of time it's one of those things where it's like wow i just had my first profound thought kind of thing (laughs) you know it's like it's a bit it's the first time that you're kind of stepping outside of of perhaps around that age of a kind of uh like what's the word for it like a, a sort of uh your own kind of little shell your little kind of safe place and you're moving into different groups of friends and you're not as much kind of uh god i'm butchering this anna uh you know well, as- I, I know what you mean though yeah because you, you're taking i mean you're you're kind of forming your identity at that time aren't you, you yeah know, you, you're moving outside are- of your kind of your, your teenage circles kind of thing yeah and, and yeah keeping- and around the same time i know that i'd moved out of home you know with my parents i'd moved out about that time uh maybe a year or two earlier but like it was around that time i i, I was getting into it at the same time i was really getting into things like music like slint um cocteau twin you know stuff that's just like there was like a little bit more challenging yeah to the yeah. young mind some things that were expand ex- would expand your mind i suppose there's a lot of people online and, and on other podcasts um who are kind of quick to sneer about donnie darko it's like an easy opportunity for them to try to show their sophistication by taking what I think are unwarranted shots at it. Yeah. Um, I don't know about you, Buckley, but I'm not here to sneer at Donnie Darko. No, I love it. And it, like, I, I, I'll probably go into it a bit later when we get a bit deeper, but like, um, yeah. yeah I, I, mean, mean, I, I, I won't fall into the trap of sneering at Donnie Darko, the theatrical cut. No. But, what I say about the director's cut and the sequel to Donnie Darko, I, I'm not going to vouch for those movies. I think we should just agree already, like now, that we're just not going to mention the sequel, S. Darko. Buckley, do you think it's true that the S in S. Darko stands for shitty? Shitty Darko. Um, There's like Donnie Darko, then shitty I've not, Darko. I've not heard or that. Or shittier have, Darko, maybe. Have you come up with that? I think that's well, a, I, I think that's one of yours. I think that's one of yours. I don't think I don't think that's a out there in the world thing. I think that's one I of think yours. I might do a director's cut of S Darko where yeah. I just rename it Shittier Darko. Um or it could be like sequel Darko, I suppose. I don't know. Um the thing is that the the theatrical cut of Donnie Darko is an almost perfect movie for me. I mean, it's definitely um a flawed film in both versions. Um but for that time and in that place, uh, for us at that cinema in Lancaster when we were 20 years old, uh, it was perfection. And when I talk about something being perfect, um, I really mean that it's flawless. Yeah. Um, I mean 
that it's exactly what it needs to be. It's often um, flawed. Exactly. I think um, we have kind of almost similar uh, views on this, uh, you know, in terms of like music, films, any kind of art, like it, it's often flawed. It's often not perfect, but it's perfect. Yeah, and, and that's it because really good art is rarely without flaws because if there are no flaws in your art, then you're probably not taking risks. And if you're not taking risks, you're probably not making good art. Mm. So that is um, my thought on art. Yeah, this is why I'm going to edit this particular episode real sloppy. Like, you know, I'm going to leave in everything, everything, yeah, everything. But the um, the circumstances of the film was fa- of the film being made. I think was fairly unique as well. You know, it, it is a fairly unique film in the fact that it exists. Um, he was a first time director. Um, not only that, but he wrote the movie as well, um, and he wrote it when he was like. Um, like, like, what was he, 23 or 24? He was 23. Have, have, have we actually told people what he's called yet? He's called Richard Kelly. Yeah, I just realised we'd not mentioned yeah. his name. We maybe have. I, maybe I just zoned out. Yeah, well, I, this is it's an interesting point, though, because, I mean, the, the thing with Richard Kelly is that, um, I mean, beyond Donnie Darko, <laughs> you know, um, I mean, Donnie Darko is his thing, isn't it? You know, like... He directed it when he was 25, I think. I mean, that was in about 2000. Um, and he was only like 26 when it was released. And, and that is very, very young. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think Kevin Smith was maybe 24 when he did Clark's. Um, I think maybe um, Nolan was about 28 when he did his first movie. Tarantino, maybe 29. Um, and But he was given, it, it was an independent movie. Yeah. But he was given, I think, was it $4.5 million to make it with, which is large for a yeah didn't he get movie. didn't he get some of that because of uh drew barrymore getting involved and well yeah that's it and she's also in the cast and that's the other thing that's incredible about it because for a first time movie that's an independent movie yeah. from a first time director and writer you've got um i've got a list here you've got drew barrymore patrick swayze oscar nominees Catherine ross who was in the graduate yeah um twice nominated mary mcdonald mcdonald um and it was a breakthrough for Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal, yeah. who were in it together, playing siblings of their own, who have both gone go on, or they've gone on to become Oscar-nominated actors as well. Um, and all that, and it has an incredible soundtrack too. Yeah, the soundtrack is a huge part of it, as we'll get into when we discuss the lack of it in the director's cut. The soundtrack, <laughs> the soundtrack was yeah. a. I mean, I remember the, the after we uh, after we'd first seen it one of the first things I did was get in touch with uh, a friend of mine called Simon. So shout out to Simon. Thank you for that, Simon. Uh, he was a little bit older. He was probably about 10 years older than me and he had all of the... Uh, he was able to uh, obtain music in ways that were a mystery to me in <laughs> 2002. Um, and music and films, he just was able to get all of it, and he was had a massive like collection of films and stuff. And uh, he he got me a copy of the soundtrack, and I just had it. I've still got the CD that I, you know, that he, he copied for me, and that I wrote on and wrote all the soundtrack down and stuff. And it was uh, I just listened to it all the time. Like he he, he got me a, a disc as well, which I, I call it a disc. It wasn't a DVD. It had the film on that I could watch on my computer. Yeah, uh, like a but, video rom. Yeah, but it was over two CDs, so I had to like split mm. it into two. Um, and I just used to watch it over and over again because the, the first thing I remember saying to you when I got out of that film when, when we were driving home was, I just want to watch it again. It's all I want to do is watch this film. And it, it happens occasionally with films. 
it's 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 a rare thing but when it happens it's amazing where you watch something and you just feel like i just want to be in this forever i just want to like live in this world and that's that's what donnie darko does so well i think is that it creates a world that you want to live in definitely and and i think the christmas after we watched it Mad World from the end of Donnie Darko became Christmas number one. So it was released in 2001. Uh, We saw it in 2002, which was when it had its UK release. And then by Christmas, uh, it was Christmas number one by 2003. It's very, very, very kind of rooted in that time, isn't it? And like you were saying about Fight Club, there's all these other movies that came out at that time that had that, what I think is, I don't know, like a kind of millennial tension. You, know, you had American Beauty, you yeah. had The Matrix, Fight Club, Requiem for a Dream, American Psycho, all coming out around the same time. But also you had um, around that time as well, uh, this is around sort of 2001, you had the first um, of the Harry Potter films coming out, you had the first of the Lord of the Rings films coming out, and you had the first Fast and the Furious coming out. So it was kind of ushering out the age where an independent film like Donnie Darko could become what that became, which is a cultural phenomenon. And I don't think that I'm wrong in saying that it's a modern classic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, going, going back to the uh, the song being Christmas number one in 2003, like, for me, that was, uh, that kind of killed it almost a bit. Like, that was like, it no longer belonged to us at that point. It was like, right, this is this is for the man now. This is for like the... The, that song has been overplayed. I mean, I, it's been really overplayed. I, it's it's hard to listen to now, um, and it's that part of the problem is just because it was covered over and over again because of the whole reality TV thing, you know. And everyone who came onto one of those reality TV shows who wanted to sing a song that really moved people would either choose "Alleluia" uh, by Leonard Cohen or um, "Mad World." by Tears for Fears and they wouldn't do Lennon Cohen's or Mad or, or Tears for Fears versions of those songs they'd, they'd do, do Jeff Buckley's version yeah. of Hallelujah and they'd do um, Michael Andrews and Gary Jewell's version of Mad World um, and you just I mean because it was then released and got to number one again didn't it by by one of those oh, reality TV stopped, people and it happened over and over again I mean, it, and there'll be countless YouTube videos of people playing that singing that song and it's just it's overdone yeah I mean it kind of bookended it for me like when 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 that year when it got to number one, that was that was the point where I was no longer obsessed with Donnie Darko. And then the following like, year, the death knell came, which was the director's cut. Yeah. That was, that was kind of the end of it. So I actually, uh, in 2003, bit of name dropping here, uh, I actually lent the DVD to um, the fairly well-known comedian Bethany Black. Oh, yeah. I lent it to, to Bethany because we, we were bonded over our uh, mutual enjoyment of miserable goth music and sad films and I was like I've got a great film for you watch this and I lent her Donnie Darko and uh, I got it back I yeah, got it back I, mean, I remember it. one of my one of my memories of, of Bethany was was the, uh, the, the 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 party we went to at her house was a, a Halloween party or yeah, something yeah, yeah. and I, I was dressed as some sort of weird goth myself and um, oh was that the the uh, incident yeah, the Morrissey the incident. incident. Yeah. <laughs> the Morrissey incident. Right, we'll, yeah. we'll live with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Less said the better, I think. So 
Yeah, as, as you pointed out, we've kind of forgotten to introduce Richard Kelly. Yeah. Um, and we've been talking a little bit about the movie now. Should we talk about kind of a brief description of the plot? For I, I've, I've said this before, but this is going to be spoilers, like really heavy spoilers. So if you haven't seen the movie and you intend to... Um, go and watch it now before you listen to this. Yeah. Uh, but this this is assuming that people have watched it. I'm going to do a very, very brief summary um, of, of the movie. So Donnie wakes up on a cliff and cycles home. We kind of find out through conversations with his family that he's a troubled teenager. Next night, he sleepwalks again, led by a giant rabbit named Frank, who tells him that the world will end in 28 days, 6 hours, 42 minutes and 12 seconds. Meanwhile, a jet engine falls through the roof of the room that he should have been sleeping in had he not been sleepwalking on a golf course. Donnie continues to see Frank. He has other visions, and while sleepwalking again, he floods his school, um, all whilst becoming convinced that he's experiencing some sort of time travel phenomenon, and he starts a romance with a new girl at school, Gretchen Ross. One of his teachers gives him a book by a local recluse, uh, which they call Grandma Death. Her name's Roberta Sparrow, um, and the book is called The Philosophy of Time Travel. He reads that and he starts to, that's part of how he becomes convinced that he's experiencing this time travel phenomenon. Meanwhile, the school hosts a series of talks and lectures based on the teachings of a motivational speaker called Jim Cunningham. Donnie starts to be able to see liquid spears, which show the future paths of people. He follows his own liquid spear, which leads him to a gun that's been stashed in his parents' room. Whilst on a date with Gretchen, Donnie sees Frank again and asks Frank to take off his bunny mask. When he does... Frank has a really, really messed up eye. That's a really good bit in the movie, that bit. I like that. I really like yeah. that bit. Um, he's all, what happened to your eye? <laughs> Sorry. It was my father's name. <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah, still don't know why Frank talks like that. No, I can't no, because, he, that because that's not his real voice. Like, like one, he has two different voices, doesn't he? Um, yeah. Because anyway, um, I, I just, I, that scene is so melodramatic, but in such a really brilliant way. Um so then Frank shows Donnie a portal. Have you ever seen a portal? Um, then Donnie, under the instruction of Frank, burns down Jim Cunningham's house. While the fire crews arrive, they find a kiddie porn dungeon. So uh, then um, Donnie's mum is required to take Donnie's little sister together with her dance troupe out to Los Angeles to perform. At the same time, Donnie's dad is in New York. So while they're away, Donnie and his older uh, sister, Elizabeth, throw a Halloween party. Gretchen shows up at the party distraught because her mum is missing and she thinks her abusive stepdad has done something to her. Uh, at that point, Donnie and Gretchen sleep with each other, which is a really odd moment that, that like, I still don't really get that. Um, but anyway. Um, I think it's that uh, when two people love each other very much and they have a spare bedroom and some alcohol has been consumed, then they, they, what happens is they take off their clothes and uh, the boy inserts. Do I need to go any further or, with this joke? Um, we, I think we, we might have to. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll have to talk about this later. Yeah, um, I'll I'll tell you all how it works. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. Finally, <laughs> finally, my time's come. Um, so then, Donnie starts to see the liquid spears again. He looks into Gretchen's liquid spear, not a euphemism, and immediately takes her to Grandma Death's house, where they get attacked by bullies, resulting in Gretchen being hit by a car and killed. The driver of that car is Frank, but he's a different version of Frank. He has both his eyes and he's much more alive. Um, but Donnie then shoots and kills him. Um, so then he, he Donnie, takes Gretchen's body up to the cliff 
from the start of the movie and watches like a weird spout form out the clouds and um, a jet engine falls from the plane that his mum and little sister are on with, um, and that uh, falls to Donnie's house. Um, and then the whole film kind of rewinds um, and resets back to the 2nd of October where it started, uh, just before Donnie met Frank. Donnie's back in bed um, and he's crushed by the jet engine. Um, outside the house, his family is distraught at the death of Donnie. Uh, Gretchen, who'd never met Donnie because um, he'd been dead from before she'd started school, cycles up to the house, asks what's going on and waves at Donnie's mum. And there's a brief moment of recognition. Also, you, all of the uh, all of the people that he's encountered throughout the film that he's had some effect on their lives, they all wake up as if from a dream uh, and feeling some kind of emotion that you assume yeah. relates to uh, what happened within the plot of the film. So Jim Cunningham is upset, obviously guilty. Uh, you know, they're all kind of they all kind of ex- yeah. seem to experience. Frank sort of touches his eye, doesn't he? Yeah, well. yeah, yeah. Um, and that that's kind of that's a very quick run through <laughs> of the theatrical cut of the movie. Um, what's weird about this film is that so the director's cut explains what Richard Kelly was intending. I think it's pretty much universally considered to be an inferior movie, the director's cut. I certainly think so. What's your view on it? Uh, I watched it last night and I, I agree, yeah. it's uh, it, it works better without the explanation. It feels like something that a 20-something man would do if he'd been asked over and over and over again what's going on in Donnie Darko. <laughs> it, yeah. It's, like, it's very like... It's got a lot of stuff. I mean, the film was already full of great little details. It was it, the, the world of the film is formed perfectly, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I mean, there's, um, there's loads of little things like like that I noticed on, on uh, last time I watched it about two or three weeks ago. The, the and obviously last night watching the director's cut, but both versions have got this kind of self-contained world, and it's like yeah. a lot of the stuff happens in a very small geographical space. You know, sort of even like the, the the place where Gretchen is killed is is right outside Grandma Death's house. It's the same place yeah. where Grandma Death uh, gets run over. The bit where they're sat on the sofa um, talking about the Smurfs is just across from Grandma Death's house. Like it, it's a very sort of nice little self-contained world, and I think that that gives it like a a really nice sort of coziness, but also kind of makes it almost a bit otherworldly, almost like it's a cartoon or something. I don't. It know. does, and things become familiar to you as you watch it because of that. Yeah, and also. Part of this, I think we can talk about later, but part of that is due to the limitations of the budget that they were filming with. Obviously, they reuse locations a lot. You know, lo- uh, nearly all of those lo- locations are used more than once, from classrooms to, like you say, that area of scrubland with the sofa, uh, Grandma Death's house, um, or you know, or the streets. You know, you see them walking up and down the same street. You know, um, at the at the beginning when Donnie walks Gretchen home, they walk past Jim Cunningham's house. They don't know it's Jim Cunningham's house, but then when he walks back later, he finds Jim Cunningham's wallet and sees. But then, it's it's so like consistent with it in its own reality. You know, like when they're there talking about Smurfs, Donnie's shooting with a BB gun, and you see that he's an incredible shot which is how he manages to get Frank dead in the eye later yeah. on in the movie. There's, there's um, loads of little callbacks, isn't there? Like it's it's yeah. almost like it, it, it's full of little puzzles and little Easter eggs. The, the one that I noticed last night, and, I, you know, 20 years of watching this film, I've probably seen it 20 times, maybe a bit less, I don't know, around 15, 20 times. And something I noticed last night was um, 
at the Halloween party, Donnie's got the uh, the skeleton outfit on, and so he actually looks like the illustrations inside Philosophy of Time Travel. Ah, uh, yeah, because they're yeah. like skeletons, aren't they? That they, you can see like the rib cage. Uh, yeah, and so he, yeah. he actually looks like the, especially when the the spear comes out, he actually looks like those illustrations in the book. Uh, yeah, that's really interesting because I I kind of thought at that point that uh, he's dressed as death as well because he's got the skeleton. Uh, outfit and then he's got the hood pulled hood. up and then he obviously causes the death of Gretchen and then kills Frank um, but there's loads of stuff all, all the way through the guy in the red tracksuit yeah he turns um, up twice doesn't he yeah and he's an FAA agent because he, he turns up in the red tracksuit twice he also turns up in a suit twice so ah, he's, he's right, there in okay. the background uh, all, all of this stuff it, it's just a wonderful world that he's painted um, you know um, and that kind of reminds me of like the Coen brothers the yeah. way they do that yeah, as well, yeah, they, they, they they have like very, very internally consistent worlds that they create yeah. in their movies, you know, which is self-referential and, and it feeds in on itself in, in this really nice feedback of atmosphere, yeah. um, you, a film that you can really live in. And the problem we have is that to a greater or lesser extent, the director's cut is what Richard Kelly intended Donnie Darko to be. Now, I don't believe for a second that every little thing that is in the director's cut is what he wanted for the original movie. But the interpretation of it, I think, I think in Richard Kelly's head, there is one correct interpretation of Donnie Darko. And that is a bold move for a director to say. Um, because when I first watched um, the theatrical cut, it definitely, definitely works as a movie, doesn't it? And I think it unfolds with a really nice dream logic. Uh, it really reminded me of Lynch when we first saw it. Um, and as you'll know, Lynch is always very reticent to talk about the exact meanings of his films. Uh, he says things like, and I have a couple of quotes from him here. I'm not going to do his voice. Um, <laughs> when things are concrete, there's very few variations in interpretations. But the more abstract the thing gets, the more varied the interpretations. But people still know inside what it is for them. And he also says, what matters is what you believe happened. Many things in life just happen and we have to come to our own conclusions. You can, for example, read a book that raises a series of questions and you want to talk to the author, but he died 100 years ago. That's why everything is up to you. So you see, this is why you never, ever get David Lynch offering an explanation or an interpretation of one of his own movies. Yeah, it's like, uh, it's like The Leftovers as well, isn't it? The whole, like the mystery be kind of... Yeah, uh, exactly. idea, and it's like the the you know the the whole point of I know I bang on about the leftovers all the time because I fucking love it, but yeah. the whole point of the, yeah, I mean, the, the, especially the, the I think the first time I watched the leftovers, I was trying to work out what the answer was and what the trying to solve it, you yeah, know, trying to solve the problem, trying to solve the puzzle, and the second time I watched it, I was just enjoying it for how good it was because I knew that the whole point of it is to live, just live inside that mystery and for it yeah, not same to be Same with Peak Series 3, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you kind of, once you kind of turn that almost analytical brain off and just don't try and solve it and just like it, almost, you know, see it as just something to enjoy and to live inside, then you, that's when you can really get to the heart of it. And I think that that is very true of Donnie Darko, like you say. 
Yeah, I think so. And for me, the theatrical cut is a fantasy because it's it's about faith. It's about God's plan, you know, God's channel, as Donnie calls it. Um, it calls into question ideas such as free will and destiny within the structure of films, which is ta- tackling difficult subjects like uh, mental illness, the dangers of limited black and white thinking, and the importance of individuality and rejections of pressure to conform. All that is excellent in a coming-of-age film. But Kelly is saying, no, no, it's a sci-fi film. Let me tell you why. And the most difficult thing to swallow is that he's right because he made the movie. Yeah. Uh, But without those extra bits of knowledge that he had in his head and he never put into the film, you can't piece that together. Yeah. It's as if he left out the important bits of the film for him, for himself. He wanted you to do your homework. Like, well, yeah, but you see, the problem was that the homework was going onto a website at the time, and yeah. now you can get it into, in a book, and then you put it into the di- director's cut, where there were explanations of things. There were pages of the philosophy of time travel, and you that means that the film doesn't stand on its own. That means that the true interpretation of the movie can't be deciphered from the movie itself, which is a very, very weird thing to do. Yeah, I mean, it was hugely arrogant. You could say it was quite yes. ahead of its time in a way because... No. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I see what you, you mean. Yeah. Just the idea of like a... a um, almost like, again, back to Damon Lindelof, almost like they did with, with Lost, yeah. where there was that whole alternate reality aspect of it, uh, alternate reality game aspect of it, sorry, where you could look on the website and find all these different things. Yeah. And there was different websites for like the, the company who made the air, air, aircraft and stuff. But it's like that didn't detract from the story it just added to it whereas yeah, yeah like you say like it, it almost did kind of take a take quite an important chunk out but that actually kind of made it a better film in a way i think it did make it a better film um so there was the website um and and it had the pages that eventually are just superimposed onto the movie in the director's yeah, cut, it's which really looks I was, horrible i was hoping for something better i was hoping for like some kind of decent explanation from maybe like the physics teacher or something, but no, it was just this really corny. Like I think that, that the director's cut is is far more badly aged than the uh, than the theatrical, just because of them. That, yeah, <laughs> that. It, it looks horrible, doesn't it? And yeah. the pages from those books, um, they, they don't look good anyway, um, but because those can't be pages from the. Um, Apart from the one or two that you actually see when he looks into the book, which are like yeah. like those like those drawings of the spheres the spheres coming out, it's just a few sentences yeah. on a page with a little picture, and that's supposed to be a whole chapter. A grandma death could do a lot better than that, and yeah. the book looks a lot nicer than that in the actual movie. So those pages aren't real pages; they're some other sort of meta creation. Yeah. Um, and I don't think Grandma Death would like that. And just. One thing about Grandma Death, who put her mailbox on the wrong side of the road? Because if that mailbox had been on the right side of the road, the same side of the road as her house, a lot of the trouble caused in this movie could be avoided. I've got a small anecdote about the, uh, the the book, the philosophy of time travel. Um, when we decided we were going to do an episode on this, I uh, I bought a copy of it off Amazon. Uh, it was a book called The Philosophy of Time Travel by Roberta Sparrow. So I assumed 
that that was because I knew there was a Donnie Darko book out there that had uh, that had all the explanation stuff off the website, the stuff that's in the director's cut. So I thought, oh, I'll buy that to research the the podcast, and it arrived. And no, it was just some other dude's fucking book about philosophy. It it barely even touched on time travel. It wasn't very long, but it was still just dull philosophy stuff. Um, absolutely nothing to do with Donnie Darko. It wasn't written by Roberta Sparrow. It was written by some guy, and he just it just put Roberta Sparrow on the Amazon description so that basically people would buy it thinking it was the, the book off Donnie Darko. What a fucking joke. I sent you were it, taken for a fool, sir. I was, I was. And I sent it back to Amazon. I know you shouldn't buy stuff off Amazon, but that was, I, I just, yeah, that was what I did. Um, <laughs> You've had some bad experiences with Amazon. I have. I, I mean, it's very... The Ouija board. <laughs> no, the Ouija board was from eBay. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah, not Amazon, but... Um, this was, Online commerce. Yeah, so I sent it back and they didn't even ask for... Uh, like I asked for a refund sorry and they didn't even ask me to send it back they were like yeah you can have a refund it's like we're used to it, <laughs> it's like it. constantly <laughs> I, oh, they'll be like oh it's another refund for philosophy of time travel <laughs> like, I bet they've got warehouses full of them <laughs> yeah it's, it's so but the, the, the point of my story is much like my story from an earlier episode about buying small Ouija boards off eBay don't buy a book called The Philosophy of Time Travel by Roberta Sparrow because that's not what it is. The book that you want is called... Um, it's called The Donnie Darko Book. There you go. And that's got everything you need in it. So don't bother with that Philosophy of Time Travel book. It's a, it's written by some douchebag. I think that both versions are, to be honest. The one in the movie and the one um, that you bought. Because I'm not sure... <laughs> I, I can't believe that Richard Kelly would ever want that to be the philosophy of time travel. You know, the bits that he, the excerpts that you see on the website that are superimposed on the screen. And from an article from 2004, I read, they said that, um, they said this is a quote. Kelly has said that he created the pages from the philosophy of time travel as an exercise in interpretation and that they are not intended to be read as canon. Nonetheless, his inclusion of many book excerpts in his director's cut suggests that his feelings on the matter might have changed and that he intends them to be definitive. And I do agree with that. I think that he's gone, he's got too far and into his own sort Us. of... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. His own rabbit hole, I was going to say. Um on on this, um, he decided on interpretation, and then he doubled down on it. And I, I think that it is destructive to the film, but it is what he intended the film to be. So, to explain the film in a linear way, and once you explain it in a linear way, it is actually quite a simple movie with quite a simple plot. Um, and so, to to kind of walk through this, I've got the excerpts from the. Um, philosophy of time travel so i'll read each one out and we can just kind of discuss really what it means either to us or in the context of the movie okay so the chapter one is the tangent universe then this is what it says the primary universe is fraught with great peril war plague and famine and natural disaster are common death comes to us all the fourth dimension of time is a stable construct though it is not impenetrable incidents when the fabric of the fourth dimension becomes corrupted are incredibly rare if a tangent universe occurs, it will be highly unstable, sustaining itself for no longer than several weeks. Eventually, it will collapse upon itself, forming a black hole within the primary universe capable of destroying all existence. So that's the first excerpt, um, and it kind of sets up the movie. Yeah. 
So the tangent world is created. It's a corruption of the fourth dimension. This is like a really common sci-fi movie trope, isn't it? I mean, think about Back to the Future Part 2 in the alternative 1985. Doc draws a, a line diagram which shows tangent universes coming off. Um, the universe is split off from its primary universe. This happens at the stroke of midnight on 2nd of October 1988, which is interesting because 2nd of October is also uh, Graham Greene's birthday, who wrote The ah, Destructors, yes. which is the... Uh, I think Kelly has said that that short story inspired... I read that short story the other night. Um, it's a really um, like upsetting and mean-spirited kind of story. Um, it has got that theme that destruction is a form of creation, which I think was important to Kelly. Um, and Donnie says it because it's that sort of on the nose sort of film. If yeah. Kelly thinks something, Donnie says something. Um, but um, yeah, it's basically just about a group of kids who are kicking about in a car park um, and they um, they wait for an old man to leave his house for the weekend. And while he's away, they just pull his whole house down to the ground. Um, I found it really upsetting, um, really <laughs> depressing. I, I do with a lot of short stories like that. I do with James Joyce's short stories. I, I just I know that they're good. They're, they're good stories, beautifully written, but they make me feel horrible. Yeah. And whilst that's so well, you get an emotional reaction. I'd rather have a different kind of emotional reaction than that one. That old man could be you in a few years. That, <laughs> it could be me already, Buckley. It could be me already. <laughs> Right, sorry. Uh, so, so, um, um, what what it really sets up well at this point, which is good filmmaking, is that there's a ticking clock, which which I'm feeling now more than ever. But the, the tangent universe is created, and Frank clearly states that that um, in 28 days, six hours, 42 minutes, and 12 seconds, the world will end. So that's that is a classic narrative device. A lot of films have something very similar in it. You're you're counting down to something, so it automatically gives the film momentum. That's just good filmmaking. Um, and you know, the world is going to end in 28 days, and what's Donnie going to do about it? That's the question posed by the movie. 28 days is also the time that it took to film the movie, and also the about the amount of time it took for Kelly to write it. Supposedly. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, knows? with stuff like that, there's, there's, there's a lot of little things like that, isn't there, in the... Um in the kind of like almost mythology that he created around the film. And you can't help but think that some of them are like really convenient. Almost yeah, like, which, which yeah. actually is kind of quite a cool thing to do, but it's like, <clears throat> it, there's a lot of kind of really convenient little Easter eggs like that. Yeah. It's like how, if you add, um, uh, six, 42, 12, um, and 28, you get, which are the numbers you get, 88 which is the year the movie was set in yeah. it's also uh, the the speed that the DeLorean gets to in order to time travel and all that kind of and thing and he was really adamant that it had to be made in 1988 wasn't he because apparently he he you know the 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 one of the companies who were originally going to make uh, like fund the film said oh can you film it make it more recent and stuff he's like no it's got to be 88 and it's because he had all these numbers numbers yeah, lined yeah. up so that people um, could 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 work it out later and then you know um it's like it's like that whole thing isn't it where um th th there's a, a certain kind of dopamine rush that people get from realizing that they've solved the puzzle or yeah, made, made yeah. a connection and and he's, he's kind of really pandering to that which I'm, but that I, kind I, of detail i like i yeah, appreciate i mean that. i'm not slagging him off for that i no. really enjoy that shit 
Yeah, I think it's just a bit far when those sorts of answers aren't in the film because that is within the film, isn't it? You watch the film. If someone thought, oh, what do these numbers add up to? They add up to 1980. Sorry, they add up to 88. The film's set in 1988. Yeah, that's a nice Easter egg. What they couldn't do is uh, look at the movie and say, oh, uh, a primary universe is fraught with great peril. War, plague, famine, and natural disaster are common. That cannot be... You could watch the theatrical cut over and over again and never get any of this from chapter one, the tangent universe. No. Um, but it does set up, though not in the movie, but in the director's cut, it does set up the fact that there's a danger here. Um, you know, once this this time runs out, the uh, tangent universe might collapse, and that might create a black hole that might destroy the primary universe um, and all existence. Which there's a similar thing in Back to the Future too. Again, isn't there about sort of the paradox if they run into their um, earlier selves? So, yeah, all of this sets up the movie. None of it's in the movie. Um, Chapter two, water and metal. Water and metal are the key elements of time travel. Water is the barrier element for the construction of time portals used as gateways between universes as the tangent vortex. Metal is the transitional element for the construction of artifact vessels. And that is all that's in the second chapter. Um, So here you've got water and metal. You've got the jet engine hurtling into the tangent universe. Um, so you've got the introduction of the idea of water and metal um, you see this throughout the film so obviously the jet engine's made of metal Donnie floods the school with water when he looks into the mirror and the mirror goes wavy what he's actually seeing is what what is explained here as a water barrier yeah and when Frank's um, and that's, like communicating with him exactly Frank sounds uh, like he's underwater as well exactly that's it um, and K- Kelly said about that that it was the medium of communication for whatever they are that are trying to communicate. Again, no sign of that in the theatrical... No. And you get that famous scene where he's stabbing the oh yeah the mirror and that's metal against water. So he's experimenting, he's testing this time travel idea, which he knows because he's read the philosophy of time travel. The viewer doesn't know because they haven't. Um, and when he touches the knife against the mirror, you know, the metal against the water, Frank's eye flashes where... Donnie kills him later on. Do you reckon this? Do you reckon the history of time travel, the philosophy of time travel, was written before or after the film? I think he had the ideas before and wrote it after. Yeah, because it seems like, yeah, I don't know, like a, like a, almost like a, a retcon. Some of it, I think, is definitely a retcon. Yeah. But some of it, I think he knew. I think he knew about the artifact, and I think he knew that he wa- he needed to get the artifact back into the primary universe. I'm pretty sure he he, know, he knows that because he knew that because so much of the film is based around things like that. Um, and I think he had an idea about who Frank was being the manipulated dead, which we'll talk a bit about later, and, and that kind of thing. But yeah, I think that a lot of what actually turns up in the pages of the philosophy of time travel is a retcon. Um, so. Chapter four, The Artifact and the Living, which was a band that I was in for several years when I was younger. Um, When a tangent universe occurs, those living nearest to the vortex will find themselves at the epicenter of a dangerous new world. Artifacts provide the first sign that a tangent universe has occurred. If an artifact occurs, the living will will retrieve it with great interest and curiosity. Artifacts are formed from metal, such as an arrowhead from the ancient Mayan civilization or a metal sword from medieval Europe. Artifacts returned to the primary universe are often linked to religious iconography, as their appearance on Earth seems to defy logical explanation. Divine intervention is deemed the only logical conclusion for the appearance of the artifact. So, I mean, this is interesting because up here already he's setting up this idea of God and greater intelligence and this thing which kind of comes 
it's kind of a recurring theme throughout it, which I think we'll talk about later. Donnie's family and Donnie were at the epicentre of the vortex, so they're the ones who are at the epicentre of the dangerous new world. Um, and so that's the jet engine that comes through the roof of their house. Um, the living, who are retrieving this, are basically anyone in the film, except for Frank and Gretchen. Uh, we'll get to them shortly. Um, and they react. They do react with interest, and the FAA get involved. The um, Federal uh, Aviation Authority. Exactly, yeah. Um, they, they make the family sign NDAs. They tail Donnie throughout the film, as I've talked about. That's that guy who's following him in the red tracksuit. And Donnie becomes a bit of a hero at school, you know, because he survived. So the artifact that comes, the jet engine, this is what Kelly has said, is it an exact duplicate of something else which is on Earth in the primary universe. So in this case, the jet engine um, has come and the FAA are interested because there is an exact jet engine with that serial number, an exact duplicate that's flying around on a plane. So they've got two of them. Um, and it's the same plane which eventually Rose and Samantha are on on the way back from LA. So the rest of all that, stuff which is in the artifact in the living chapter is just a bit of light world building again not even hinted at in the film and doesn't even make much sense in the context of the pages uh it, goes, it hits all the right notes though it's talking about the mayans they're a bit mysterious it's talking about medieval europe so you get all the knights of old and swords and sorcery and that kind of thing it's setting up for adventure and um, it also mentions obviously the divine intervention and uh, religious iconography Again, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> um, so chapter six is the living receiver. Um, the living receiver is chosen to guide the artifact into position for its journey back to the primary universe. No one knows how or why a receiver will be chosen. The living receiver is often blessed with the fourth dimensional powers. These include increased strength, telekinesis, mind control, and the ability to conjure fire and water. The living receiver is often tormented by terrifying dreams, visions, and auditory hallucinations during his time within the tangent universe. Uh, those surrounding the living receiver, known as the manipulated, will fear him and try to destroy him. So that's just kind of setting up Donnie's role in all this. Again, we don't know any of this as a viewer of the movie. We don't know any of this. Uh, we don't know what a living receiver is, and we don't know that Donnie is one. No, I mean, um, my first um, my first kind of uh, encounter with these phrases and words was actually in the soundtrack. Yeah, and so yeah, because the, the the songs, but Michael Andrews' songs are named after a few of these things, aren't yeah, they? A lot of them, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like the artifact and the living and um, uh, insurance trap and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it says that no one knows why uh, the living receiver is chosen. Donnie is is a strange kid to start with, isn't he? We know he's had emotional problems already, and I kind of get the vibe that he's a kind of shaman kind of character. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. like he's got a different view of reality and his strange relationship with reality is what makes him the chosen one i guess yeah um he's got special powers we kind of see that through the film he manages to get an axe into the bronze mascot at the school and they, they sort of comment that no one could have done that in the yeah. film sort of, solid um, bronze that's right um, he carries gretchen home after she's been killed which is again takes a lot of strength although these aren't sort of superhero levels of strength they're just quite strong um supposedly he uses fire and water powers to burn Cunningham's yeah, house I mean, you, down you, and flood you, the school. It's not really explicit, is it? No, I mean, he has an axe and he, he breaks a pipe yeah. in the school and he has petrol, doesn't he? He has gasoline or something but in the it, house. It could be that, the, that the, the book was written in the way that myths are often written, uh, as in they're not full, the person writing it doesn't fully understand what they're seeing and so they write a myth and then it gets passed down 
and and you know sort of that that, that interpretation of it uh, sort of is not scientifically accurate but it's written in the style of a myth isn't it is what I'm saying. yeah well this is interesting because this hints at something that i'd been wondering about whether the philosophy of time travel is like a received text because she was a nun wasn't she and apparently she left the order of nuns that she was part of to yeah. write this book and then she started teaching science i think all of a sudden at school. Yeah, at school and also uh the, the whole idea because i thought about this idea too when uh with the whole thing of donnie uh wearing the skeleton uh the skeleton hoodie what came first so were, were roberta sparrow's illustrations in the book because she'd already seen Donnie in his skeleton suit with the spear coming out of his chest, perhaps. Yeah, th- there is a there is a theory which Kelly has supported that Roberta Sparrow was a living receiver right. who survived, and that gave her the ideas for the book. I, again, this is I think is very much a retcon. Um, it's fun, I, though. <laughs> it is fun, and, and I and I do wonder if for Roberta Sparrow, uh, Donnie is. Um, a perhaps a manipulated dead right. because he dies in her universe and he shows up and interacts with her and gives her a letter and all that kind of thing. It's not a strong theory, but I did start to wonder about things like that. You know, how many layers of different tangent universes are we seeing within this movie? Um, and I don't know. Is her mailbox an artifact because it's made of metal? Who knows? I think I'm going too deep into it. Um, and so, as we said, yeah, that, that, Chapter also introduces the idea of the manipulated, who's basically everyone else in that movie. Um, chapter seven is the manipulated living. So the manipulated living are often the close friends and neighbours of the living receiver. They are prone to irrational, bizarre, and often violent behaviour. This is the unfortunate result of their task, which is to assist the living receiver in returning the artifact to the primary universe. The manipulated living will do anything to save themselves from oblivion. This is interesting because it, it gets into some of the actual meat of the film, doesn't it? I mean, the, yeah. Although, like everything else in this book, we don't know this explicitly as a viewer watching the theatrical cut. A lot of this is quite obviously shown, isn't it? Yeah. You, you've got things. So the manipulated living are um, everyone except Gretchen and Frank, really. And a great example of this is when Monitoff, who's the physics teacher, and Pomeroy, who's the English teacher, are sitting in the staff room in the school, and Monitoff just says. Donnie Darko. Donnie Darko. Yeah. And she says, I know. Like in yeah. a really sort of, like she does know. Yeah. But this is just saying, you know, that when he's not there, when he's not on screen, people are just weirdly talking about him, yeah. saying his name, and like contemplating Ch- him. Chirita having his name written on a, um, on a exactly. book and stuff like that. Yeah. So, so this is because they are all in some way now in this tangent universe, puppets who are being puppeted by whatever this intelligence is to get Donnie into the right place at the right time to return the artifact the jet engine to the primary universe um, there's loads and loads of examples of this like how Monitoff just gives Donnie the philosophy of time travel the book um, how Kitty Farmer supports Cunningham's innocence in his campaign so that she can't take sparkle motion to LA so Rose has to do it even though it's a bad weekend um, and so then Donnie and Elizabeth can have the party so that living Frank will have to get beer so yeah. that yeah, so I mean, you can basically—it's all very tenuous, but you can start to look at the film that way. It's all and dominoes, is great, isn't it? It's all like domino yeah. effect stuff. This is a great tactic, I think, for for the for Kelly as he's writing the movie as well. Because I've been listening to a few podcasts about Donnie Darko his research, and a lot of them say, "Oh, the characters are all so well rounded in this film," and I don't think they are at all. I think on paper, 
I think that these are actually really weak two-dimensional characters apart from Donnie. I think what confuses people is that there's some really, really great acting in this film. So yeah. I think that I think that Eddie and Rose Darko could be extremely flat characters had it not been for the incredible performances um, of Mary McDonnell and um, Holmes Osborne, um, who, I mean, we were talking about this earlier. Yeah. They are just absolutely incredible, uh, particularly, I think, because when we were younger, we really loved Donnie Darko's dad, didn't we? Yeah, he's um, a, I, as an adult, I also love him. He's <laughs> yeah. just such a great dad. Well, I don't know if he's a great dad, but he's a, he's a, he's a great character. He's a very likable bloke. Yeah, and but, his mum's great as well. She's a proper like wine mum, isn't she? Yeah, but Mary McDonald's performance in that film is absolutely incredible, and most of it is done without dialogue. Yeah. Most of it is done in her expressions, facial expressions, and 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 like just like little things that she does with her eyes and. Like, yeah, and she's incredible at that, and you can tell that she's sort of a, a twice Oscar nominated um, actress and president as well. Uh, yeah, because she was president in Independence Day. Oh no, was she the president's wife in Independence Day? Yeah, and, and then, then she president was president in Laura Roslin. Yeah. yeah, so say we all. But yeah, so a lot of these characters are extremely two-dimensional. You get lines like, beer and pussy, that's all I need, from one of his idiot friends. Yeah. And and they are idiots, those friends. Yeah, I mean, like, they're all like archetypes, aren't they? Almost, like yes. archetypes of like suburban high school kind of... Um, films or, or yeah but even then that kind of line is extremely on the nose to yeah. say that this guy is is thoughtless and is just an adolescent uh, but you can accept that within the, the, the lore of the movie because these are just people who are cogs you know moving like clockwork um to make this one thing happen um and that's why i think some of the characters like even the bullies as well have a very like drone-like quality to them you know there's not a lot there um and I think that that also helps thematically to sort of accentuate Donnie's loneliness and isolation. Yeah. Because he, he's obviously a much more intelligent character than most of the people in the film. Um, so that, that's that's basically it, isn't it? Everyone's doing their best to save themselves from oblivion. So chapter nine of the philosophy of time travel is the insurance trap, um, which is just two lines long. Um, the manipulated dead will set an insurance trap. The living receiver must ensure the fate of all mankind. So, I mean, that's kind of setting out the stakes of the movie, isn't it? Mm. Um, you know, um, I, th- I think that's all there is to it. I think the, the idea is, well, we'll talk, about, we'll talk about how the insurance trap is set when we talk about the manipulated dead. So what the book says about the manipulated dead is the manipulated dead are more powerful than the living receiver. If a person dies with an attention dimension, they're able to contact the living receiver through the fourth dimensional construct. The fourth dimensional construct is made of water. The manipulated dead will manipulate the living receiver using the fourth dimensional construct. See Appendix A and B and those those pictures that we were talking about earlier. Uh, the manipulated dead will often set an insurance trap for the living receiver to ensure that the artifact is returned safely to the primary universe. If the insurance trap is successful, the living receiver is left with no choice but to use his fourth dimensional power to turn the artifact back in time into the primary universe before the black hole collapses upon itself. Um, so the manipulated dead are obviously Frank and Gretchen. Uh, Frank contacts Donnie through the fourth dimensional construct, which is what we talked about earlier. So the, the insurance trap here is basically Gretchen dies, Donnie's in love with Gretchen, and um, Frank causes um Gretchen to die Donnie causes Frank to die basically at that point then uh, Donnie has nothing to live for because Gretchen is dead uh, and the police are coming after him so his hand is forced he has to using his telekinetic powers send the jet engine back from the sky in the plane that his mum and sister are on through a portal back into the primary universe none of that is in the film explicitly (laughs) 
Uh, chapter 12 is, is the, the last one, and that's just dreams. And this is one of the chapters that I can't actually get behind. Uh, when the manipulated awaken from their journey into the tangent universe, they're often haunted by the experience in their dreams many of them will not remember. Those who do remember their journey are often overcome with profound remorse for the regretful actions buried within their dreams, the only physical evidence buried within the artifact itself, all that remains from the lost world. Ancient myth tells of the Mayan warrior killed by an arrowhead that had fallen from a cliff when there was no army. No enemy to be found. We are told of the medieval knight mysteriously impaled by sword he had not yet built. Uh, we are told that these things occur for a reason. And so this is just about why some people seem to be re remembering when when yeah. we go back to the primary universe after Donnie dies. Um, you know, Gretchen recognizes Rose. Rose recognizes Gretchen. Like you said earlier, they all wake up from these dreams slightly altered. So that is Kelly's idea of what the film is. Uh, the whole thing is just a really mechanic, mechanical task, isn't it? The jet engine comes in the wrong di dimension and, and Donnie has to return it. Yeah. That, that's what the whole thing comes down to. So where does all this emotion come from in this movie? I mean, I was going to do like a whole structure thing about how this fits into a, a standard Campbellian story structure. And I think it does nicely. And I think that Kelly thinks it does too. But instead, I've decided to talk about the weirder elements of it to try and make sense of the story in that way um but one thing that i did want to talk about is how donnie's basically a completely passive protagonist he's got little or no agency he has this task and he just goes through it his choices are forced upon him either by frank appearing to him and telling him to do stuff um or uh you know, by other means you know through the the insurance trap you know all this um is almost an apology for having a very passive lead character which is usually the kiss of death for a story um I mean, he, it's interesting thematically because he's a teenager, you know, who are sort of classically kind of powerless and, and without their own agency uh, or with limited agency. Um, and it's an interesting comparison to something like, say, uh, American Gods by Neil Gaiman, which in the book, Shadow is a really, really passive character. Um, he doesn't make any decisions himself. Wednesday manipulates him all the way through. Uh, and in that movie, someone actually calls him up on it. I think it's his dead zombie ghost wife uh, actually calls him up on it and said like that you don't do anything you know you're this passive character so Gaiman effectively takes what should be a flaw in his story and hangs a lantern on it and makes it a virtue of his story and I think Donnie Darko kind of does the same with this idea of the manipulated you know everyone in this movie is being manipulated by a greater cosmic puppet master but um, there's also a lot of cliche in this movie uh, most of it's superficial uh, but it can get a little bit film school um, you know, the film starts with the protagonist waking up and that's a no-no in modern screenwriting because we've seen it over and over again. The next thing that we're waiting for is to see their eye blink open like used to happen in Lost, which yeah. doesn't happen in the theatrical cut, but just seems to happen over and over and over again in the director's cut. Um, so the other thing is that Donnie is the chosen one, very clearly the chosen one, which is another really, really worn out narrative idea, isn't it? Um it was tied that that one was tied back in 2001 he's also the kind of hyper intelligent protagonist that says the things that the audience want to say to their teachers or their parents or their girlfriend or whatever um he i think that kelly is kind of falling for the smartest guy in the room trope there i think that kelly that maybe donnie darko is who richard kelly wishes he was um donnie falls for the new girl at school and she's a bit of a trope herself she's not quite the manic pixie dream girl but she's yeah. got the dream girl quality hasn't she um despite a large part of the films being about how emotions and life do not fall into a simple linear spectrum 
you know, uh, as, as part of a dichotomy. In the end, Donnie does make a simple choice between love and fear. All the way through, he says that he's afraid to die alone. He's afraid. He's afraid to die and he's afraid to die alone specifically. And yet at the end, for the love of Gretchen, he goes and dies alone so that she can live. Um, and, and, and despite that being a cliche, and despite a lot of these cliches, the film still carries massive emotional weight. And I can't really explain that, but it's one of the only films that's ever made me cry. Acton in London, 2003, uh, December. Um, and I almost cried again this time when I watched it um, for the first time doing this research. Um, I mean, it's, it's quite an adolescent movie, but it doesn't talk down to the, to the viewer, um, you know, whether that be a teenager or a 40-year-old man. Um, and I, this is why I think that it frustrates me about this insistence on the simple single interpretation of the film. Um, you know, because in the director's cut, it's revealed that Donnie's medication is placebo. placebo. Yeah. Yeah. So that's saying that the mental health element of it is wrong. You know, Kelly says there's no one crazy in this movie. It completely removes that away from it, which is a beautiful part of the narrative in the theatrical cut. But I think most importantly, it shows that filmmaking is a joint effort. You know, I think people were holding him back in the theatrical cut. I think it was edited by someone else. I think that people forced him to cut certain bits out and not put certain ideas in. You know, I think that a lot of the important parts of this film were done by people other than Richard Kelly. And that's what kind of annoys me about the whole auteur idea in it. Because the fact is that Richard Kelly might not be a great filmmaker. He might just be a filmmaker who made a great film. I rewatched the film recently. Um, I rewatched the theatrical version a couple of months ago and the director's cut yesterday. Um, and one of the things which struck me uh, was the time of all the times I've watched it, I've watched it maybe 15, 20 times. Yeah. Uh, the time I enjoyed it most was the very first time I watched it. Definitely. When I knew the absolute least about it and when I had no idea what to expect and when I had no context and I had no um, idea of films and how, you know, things like plot and I just, I was practically yeah, a child. Yeah, soaking it up. Yeah, and um, I thought about that and then I thought about the, the other times I watched it, you know, sort of I, I, even before I got the DVD when I was still watching it on that weird computer disc in two yeah. goes, you know, and it was... Um, it, to me, that is that is the heart of the movie. To me, the heart of the movie is, and I, I, this other people might not agree with me on this, but it is that it is the the more I look into the sci-fi stuff, the more that seems to be almost in service to the emotional weight of the movie, which is, I think, where it excels the most. I think with, with the sci-fi stuff, I think you can you can pick that apart. Uh, if you want to, I don't particularly want to. I enjoy the sci-fi stuff as well, and I think it works. It works in a similar way, and it hits me in a similar way to uh, another favorite work of mine, which is Lost, uh, the TV show. Which, in a similar way, 
if you watch Lost with kind of almost you need to kind of almost watch it with soft eyes to some degree and just yeah, enjoy I mean, it y- as a yeah. rather than as something you over analytically sci-fi kind of mind something that's more just accepting the characters and and almost if you if you scrutinize it too much whilst it's very fun enjoying all the Dharma initiative stuff and looking at all the ARG stuff that's great but if you go in too hard with almost scholarly over analytical um sort of attitude you're going to find holes in it and that's uh, i don't know i don't i think i think it, it, with lost and donnie darko they're both similar in that respect yeah i mean i i was never as big a fan of lost as as you were but i definitely see it in what you were saying about the leftovers yeah um, which i've only ever watched leftovers once once is so enough i've not i've, I've not <laughs> yeah. had, yeah, still well, recovering what well, yeah exactly once was um i'm still composing myself after that but i, I do th- see what you I see the same thing as you're saying about Lost in that. Yeah. If if I think about the leftovers, I think about what I felt at specific parts, you know, like yeah. when the priest is on the boat, you know, uh, at the, the last episode, which I won't go into for spoilers because that's one thing I don't want to spoil for people. Um, I think about uh, various expressions um, that um, uh, Kevin yeah. makes throughout, you yeah. know, uh, bewilderment and often fear bewilderment and yeah it's it's often bewilderment it's all emotional i i very rarely think about what was actually happening beyond the people disappearing and if you think about uh lost and the leftovers and donnie darko they've all got very recognizable music as well lost with that one particular uh theme i'm not gonna hum it I'm not a very good hummer but the the theme i think it's called life and death that plays whenever something significant happens and it makes the hair on my arm, stand on end. The leftovers music, Max Richter's beautiful yeah. piano themes beautiful. for that, and it's similar. Donnie Darko had a similar um, effect on me, and I, I often wonder actually whether because Lost came after Donnie Darko, whether the whole idea of something weird involving a plane crash and a jet engine actually kind of weirdly kind of came from Donnie Darko in my head, like, and that's why I enjoyed, yeah. one of the reasons I, mean, I enjoyed it was very Lost much so much in the Zeke guys then wasn't well nine eleven yeah yeah exactly um, but yeah I was I was driving the other day and and one of the songs from the leftovers came on yeah. and I didn't recognize it instantly for what it was but I was awash with the leftovers emotion yeah you know, we had mix of sort of melancholy and desolation yeah but all, also sort of fascination and confusion it all just came back in in waves because the music is so evocative but Michael Andrews score does that yeah beautifully. and I think that so if we think about like the three the three uh Darko Donnie Darko lost in the leftovers I feel like they're almost uh different stages of life for me and i feel like they're all examples of me kind of almost enjoying to some degree being confused but also kind of sad and like that that almost almost wallowing not quite wallowing but almost like spending time in something that confuses you and makes you sad and makes you cry and i've cried at all three and i'm not afraid to admit mm. that <laughs> i've cried at all three uh things and uh, and it's almost like a, they all have the same uh they all have, have almost quite a similar um place in my life as in a, a place where i can go to and it is sad but i kind of enjoy it yeah and it's also um they they are almost 
stages of a life as well, aren't they? Because the teenage years of Donnie Darko, the the um, um, lost uh, the characters are often in their early to mid twenties, yeah. and leftovers their thirties and forties, yeah. uh, and e- each stage of those lives comes with its own mysteries, confusions, and melancholia. Yeah, which is what you've just described, I think. Yeah, and I think sort of um, you know who I was when I watched Donnie Darko, I very much related to it um yes you know I, I, as we've kind of hinted at before um without going too deep like from sort of the age of about 18 till 21 i was i was very mentally ill and i was like mm. i after school i had to i wasn't able to go to uni and i was basically had like three years out where i kind of was very very ill and very depressed and that was when it was it was kind of coming out of that that i first watched donnie darko and I I felt like I related to it a lot and I related to the character of Donnie a lot. Now, I don't now at all. I watch it mm. and I feel like he's, you know, kind of uh, very much a character, very much almost a bit of an edgelord, kind of uh, a bit of a cliche that, archetype kind of. But at the same time, kind of, I feel like that that, is, that was an important part of a thing to go through and then sort of uh, like I guess watching it now it makes me feel like I've kind of come further than that and then it, so you think sort of if we're talking about Lost and then The Leftovers so The Leftovers is although it fulfills a similar a, a similar um, kind of role almost uh, a similar purpose it is the things that the leftovers are talking about dealing with are more specifically to do with grief and loss. Yeah. Um, and that it's very, is, very emotionally heavy, that yeah. series. And so that's something that you don't really generally deal with as a teenager, but you do deal with in your 30s and 40s yeah. a lot more. Um, so it's almost like that's more appropriate for me now, you know. Um, but yeah, it... it I think that the film, obviously we said we weren't going to sneer at it and I absolutely do not. And I absolutely, it meant a lot to me. There was a time when that film really meant something to me and when that film really was my favourite film. It really was kind yeah. of almost part of my identity. And I, I um, <clears throat> jokingly talked about how, you know, uh, Christmas 2003 was the, the day Donnie Darko died because that was when he was at number <laughs> yeah. one. Like, like, yeah, yeah. Um, that was when he went to number one. That was when it kind of died for me because it didn't feel special. Because you, you know what it's like when you're that age. You know, you're. I mean, I, I wasn't a teenager, but like I said, because I've been ill for so long, I kind of had to start my teenage years again. Yeah. At the age of like 21, I had to kind of go back to kind of being 17 and kind of relive them. So I was always sort of quite a few years behind everyone developmentally wise. Which mm. I was, I was in a similar position because I'd been ill. I'd been physically ill um during a similar time so I, I i very much had that experience too it's almost like we both had like a, a hole cut out of our lives around that time and then it kind of we both spent perhaps quite a lot of time in our 20s and maybe early even early 30s kind of dealing with that somehow and it, it, so it, it felt to me like donnie darko was a really special film to me because it was a film where there was someone who potentially had mental illness and you could have the mental illness reading of it you know um director's cut aside and then so if you think about it kind of 
um, lines like, you know, where he says to his mum, how does it feel to have a son that's a wacko? And she says, yeah. wonderful. And yeah. stuff like that. And it That's a great line. Stuff like that, like really, really resonated with me and really made me feel upset. And the fact that I watched that film with my best friend um, yeah, at the cinema, just down the road from where we went to school, it just had a, a, a it felt like a very, very important, thing in my life and yeah definitely um, I, I had a similar relation to it because I Donnie Darko is obviously also about a teenager who's dodged death you know with mm. the jet engine coming through his roof and coming to terms with that um and and how and how that has changed his idea of stuff so I, I was having a parallel although not completely identical experience to you at the same time yeah and it's it's sort of I guess it kind of inserted itself into our lives. Like it, I, I, I think of it as kind of almost like a, it's a film that's very kind of silver and blue and it's like a silver blue thing kind of lodged in my chest that was kind of there. And so watching it, watching it recently, there's other, like I say, there's other things that have filled the spot. There's other films and books and, and, uh, and TV shows that have filled uh, that role in terms of both, a sad place that's kind of comforting to wallow in um, uh, or um, something which causes you that puzzlement and makes you think and makes you, you know, there's things that puzzle you and confuse you that you can kind of enjoy because you're trying to solve the puzzle. Um, but I very much am still very grateful for, you know, that film and for the, the what it meant to my life. And watching the director's cut made me realise just how, brilliantly that was done because the director's cut doesn't have that to it you know i think no. and one of the one of the huge things one of the huge things that, that the director's cut lacks is the music it has hardly any of michael andrew's score it misses out some of the great musical moments um and swaps others around unnecessarily. yeah i mean the, the it misses out the killing moon at the start which is i mean th- thankfully they left in uh, what's possibly my favourite scene in the film, which is the Tears for Fears, Head Over Heels yeah. scene at the high school, which is absolutely fucking a phenomenal. perfect shot, that, have, isn't it? Have you seen the music video to that uh, song, the original? I haven't, no. It's clearly, Donnie Darko have clearly based some of the shots on that because it's, right. it's in like an old library, but the way that it goes through the door and opens it, and it's, it's a fucking amazing music video, and you should definitely link yeah. to it in the show notes. Yeah, well um, And yeah, like the the music, I think had a huge huge impact on the emotional weight of that both the 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 pop music in it and the score and yeah so that's my that's kind of my uh it's not really it was a kind of classically buckly badly organized kind of rant there i get it though it was from the it was from the heart it was from the heart and that's close to where that silver purple blue thing and i think another thing which i i wrote down was that it's um it's kind of like the three Stevens, not me, uh, Hawking, King, and Spielberg. And the film kind yeah. of brings together all of those. But if you go too far in one direction, you know, but it's certainly got the 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 emotional, you know, and I think that, that the bit that I kind of perhaps latched onto the most was actually the, the Spielberg, was actually the, the emotional thing, you know, that... that um, and I think that that's where it succeeds the most in that kind of weirdly comforting melancholy.
So one of the things that I wanted to talk about was the world that Donnie Darko is set in. Mm -hmm. As we talked a bit about before, it's really, really beautifully and, and carefully put together, this world. There's so much that's gone into it that Richard Kelly has carefully crafted that's not really ever for the viewer to consciously see. It's just there. It's there in, in the world that, of Donnie Darko. And as you said, that's a world that you can live in. And it's a, it is a world that feels lived in. It feels like a very vast and detailed world. Yeah. Um, and so, first of all, I thought I wanted to talk a little bit about why it was set in the 80s. You know, we talked about 1988 and how that was... Um, you know, the year in which it's set. But um, what is the significance of that? Well, I mean, I, I think that it's a bit of a, it's a liminal time, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. To overuse that word. So he's a teenager. The country is having an election. Uh, it's October, so the seasons are changing. Um, election time also weirdly comes into Southland Tales, um, which is a word that actually just crashed my computer before. Yeah. <laughs> just the very mention of that. That is one of the worst films that I've ever seen. Um, without a doubt, uh, I watched it the other day, and uh, it cruelly took away yeah, two not, and a half hours of my life. It's not good, not good at all. But it's also set around an election, um, so there is that weird thing of change being on the way. Um, plus, this is obviously Richard Kelly's childhood, isn't it? I mean, he, he was born in I think seventy five or seventy six, so he grew up in the eighties. He said in the in the director's commentary to the theatrical cut that he is that little kid at the end that stands with Gretchen oh, yeah. and waves at Donnie Darko's mum. That's him. That's his perspective. You know, he's a nine or ten year old kid. Got squished by a plane. Whole th- <laughs> yeah, exactly. Watching it all happen. Um, so, I think that's why it had to be set in there. But I often forget that Donnie Darko is a period piece. I mean, it's obviously set in the 80s, but it doesn't fetishize the 80s. It's not one of those films that you would say is so 80s. No, I mean, it's, it's kind of one of the first, isn't it? When I was thinking about no- 80s nostalgia, that didn't really kick in until a few years later. No, I mean, if you're thinking about things like Stranger Things and yeah. that kind of thing, I mean, which really does have that sort of everything has to be super 80s. And Donnie Darko isn't like that, apart from the obvious choices in the soundtrack. Mm. Um it's it's obviously not filmed in the 80s. It was filmed a, a decade and a bit later. If Donnie Darko had been filmed in the 80s um, or if it had been set in the 90s when it was written, you know, the end of the 90s, it would be full of tropes of that period that were unconsciously getting into the film uh, because the filmmakers would be living it at the time and they wouldn't realise that their view of that time period is myopic. Yeah. But setting a film in the 80s from the remove of a decade it allows those that flavor to be more subtle it allows there to be a certain nostalgia it allows richard kelly to kind of pick and choose what he wants to turn up and turn down about that decade you know from the remove of 12 years later and what's most significant um about about the period in which it's set is the political significance um both in the time that it was set, you know, in the 1980s, you know, the end of the 80s, it was post-Reagan, um, you know, the, you had the neoliberal apathy and the advent of the mental health crisis. Uh, but also the time that it was made, we talked about those other films that had, you know, like Fight Club and The Matrix, um, American Beauty, that had that underlying paranoia and angst yeah. to it, that sort of 
millennial type angst. Um, and that was just before the era of 9-11, um, which would sort of bring us into the modern era. So it, be- it captures the beginning of the mental health crisis. It's the Reagan presidency, the first flush of the neoliberal affluence and utopia that we talked about in the Ghostbusters episode. The sheen of that is starting to come off. We're about to enter the post-Reaganite era of alienation and anxiety, which would be encapsulated in the grunge movement. Um, The world is about to be overcome by paranoia. Uh, And of course, we know from where we are now um, that uh, Bush Sr. wins over Dukakis um, and that continues another four years of the Republican presidency. Uh, Bush starts the war in Iraq um, and eventually becomes what is a relatively rare thing in America, which is a single-term president. But by the late 80s, the middle classes were kind of flourishing, and we can see that in Donnie Darko because it's full of affluence and privilege. It's all on show all over that movie, from um, the Porsche, it's Eddie's Porsche that's parked outside Donnie Darko's house. The house itself is this huge, beautiful house. Elizabeth's going to go to Harvard, so they've got to have money to pay for that. Donnie's therapist, who is a really, really bad therapist, by the way, (laughs) um, is um, $200 an hour, and that's in 1988. Yeah. So these people have a lot of money. Um, everything appears good, you know. Everything looks nice. This is the affluence that was around in that late 80s. And and you see this in other things as well, that underneath that, everything is becoming rotten. Um, films like Blue, Blue Velvet, Velvet yeah. tackle that really, really well as well. Uh, but the nation is flourishing. Life is easy. It's almost too easy. The Cold War is running out of steam. But all of that fear and that anxiety and paranoia it's being internalized and it starts to manifest in people as mental health problems, you know, which is why there's sudden uptick around that time historically. The parents themselves are staunch Republicans, but they're very, very liberal in their actual views. Yeah. So when they're talking about who they're going to vote for, uh, it's Bush all the way, you know, and the Donnie Darko's dad goes downstairs and swears at the TV yeah. as he's watching Bush at the debate with Dukakis. Um, but what's actually happening, I think, is that conservatism is changing and these people are changing. You know, just before George Bush and the Iraq war, um, the conservative parents, they've afforded their kids the freedom to be liberal. You know, th- throughout, uh, Rose and Eddie are portrayed as being extremely liberal, liberal in everything except their politics, uh, but they, they can't see, they, they can see the politics of the next generation of conservatism coming through, which is a, a more harsh version of it. The, the George Bush... Um, conservatism and you see that in characters like Kitty Farmer or Jim Cunningham who are literal displays of these attitudes you know Jim Cunningham being like the semi-Masonic figure uh, who has the dirty secret he teaches kids self-confidence using an oversimplified manipulative version of morality all this with this cheap veneer of bullshit uh, with kind of wishful thinking as a a form of pop psychology Um, it's planting the seeds from which you know decades later alternative facts will grow Uh, Donnie Darko's parents are are smart enough to see this happening, but they're not self-aware enough to change it themselves. Uh, And and this kind of cognitive dissonance that they have there causes them to naturally feel alienated from their peers. And you see that beautifully in that scene with the um, when Kitty Farmer comes to the door with the whole "I'm starting to doubt your commitment to sparkle motion." motion." Um, You know, and I mean, at that point, Rose is basically openly mocking her. Yeah, you know, and. I, and you can see that detachment that they're almost sort of retreating into this weird form of apathy. And, and like you said, she's a wine mum, you know, yeah. she's started drinking and all and the rest the, of it. There's a bit where, uh, where it's in the, uh, 
director's cut where Donnie comes home and Eddie's a bit drunk sat at the table and he's Eddie's like tell him to say fuck you yeah. <laughs> like, I have that whole thing written out here so it's actually the next thing I was going to say oh, what he says is whatever happens to you be honest tell the truth even if they do look at you funny and they will but what you got to understand son is that almost all of these people are full of shit they're all part of this great big conspiracy of bullshit and they're scared of people like you because those bullshitters know that you're smarter than all of them and you know what we say to people like that hmm Fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> and that is that's a beautiful thing because he's telling that to his son, but he's not taking that advice in his own life, you know. Um, and these bullshitters, this conspiracy of bullshitters, are this the, this Republican Party, which is, has another four years to run at that point. So the Republican elite in suburban America was becoming disillusioned and basically raised a generation of liberals. Yeah, and you see that in Elizabeth very, very clearly there. Yeah. And one of the questions that I wonder is, would they see all this if they weren't the manipulated living? If Donnie hadn't have had that brush with death, would Rose and Eddie have been the same? Would they have started to have these realisations? Or are they being manipulated? I, I don't know. But the thing is that the way that Donnie is, the way that Donnie behaves, and the, the character of Donnie, as you'd mentioned earlier, is a bit of an edgelord. But he's emblematic of what is to come through the next decade. Um, so he's in a world in the movie that's specifically created to task him with working out why the world that he's living in isn't quite right. You know, what's off with it? He's there to destroy it. His whole purpose is to fix something that's wrong with the world and that he that he didn't do and that he, that he has no part of. And he has to go by feel and by intuition. He's living a life that isn't his own by that point. And I think that that's, it's interesting because I think that, Richard Kelly must have been about 16 when Nevermind was released. Um, so that's like a decade before he, he made Donnie Darko. Um, and this is where you see the seeds. 1988 is where the, you see the seeds of this, you know, because Nirvana started recording Bleach in 1988. Uh, Surfer Rosa by the Pixies was released in 1988. Soundgarden released Ultra Mega OK in 1988. Screaming Trees released Invisible Lantern. Dinosaur Jr. released Bug. Mudhoney released Super Fuzz Big Muff. And all of this kind of music is no, notably and correctly absent from the soundtrack. Yeah. But it, it was a time of actual cultural change. You just don't see it in this suburban neighbourhood. Because it was underneath. You know, exactly. All of this was on the horizon. And within three years' time, um, you know, three years of when the film was set, it would be completely pervasive in culture. Yeah. You know, and Donnie acts out, he lashes out against his parents and his teachers, he tells it as it is, or at least how he sees it. But this rage isn't political rage. It's not the scream of the oppressed. He's privileged. It's a wall. It's it's he, he set himself up behind this wall, and what you hear from him is basically like a a wail of empty dissatisfaction. You know, um, it's it's ennui, if anything. Yeah, um, I mean, he sees what is broken, but he is broken. He sees a thing that is wrong, but he fights back with more things that are wrong. He tells teachers to forcibly insert books into their anuses. Uh, he floods the school. Uh, he burns down a house. And eventually he actually shoots a guy in the head. Uh, he is the disaffected youth. Now, I, I'm not saying that this is a literal reading of Donnie Darko, that Donnie is like Kurt Cobain or anything, although Kurt Cobain did have an imaginary friend. He did kill himself. Yeah, so... I, I don't think Richard Kelly likes the interpretation that Donnie kills himself, but I think that's an unavoidable 
conclusion that you get to at the end of the film. Yeah. Um, and also Kukabane's incorrectly being labelled as a messiah figure as well. Uh, but there was a coming wave of mental health um, coming. You know, there was dis- dissociation from reality, um, a retreat into fancy worlds resulting in the breakdown of societal boundaries, which would contribute to the 90s waves of school shootings um, you know, by disconnected and disillusioned students of those schools. Um, teen suicide, as we've just discussed, uh, was about to increase. Um you know, these, these rebels without a cause and this pandemic of dissatisfaction and listlessness and apathy, uh, which Donnie could quite credibly symbolise. This cultural phase would last until, ironically, 9-11, which happened just before the film was released and almost destroyed it because obviously there's a plane in the movie that, that a large part of the movie is about down down plane or parts of a down plane. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that it didn't run at many uh, cinemas yeah, it when was it was a bad, released. Yeah, it was about time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then post 9-11, obviously, the paranoia crystallized into which a much more um, externalized enemy once again, you know, like it was in the Cold War. Um, you know, they'd found it again. They'd found that um, external enemy for, for the nation to unite against and externalized it. They re-externalized it. But these conspiracy theories became rife and they started to take on a much darker and destructive edge post 9-11. Um, the cries of the dissatisfied and disaffected, uh, of course, they have a place in society. Um, and they were an obvious symptom of the rot that had taken hold under the surface at this time, the time that Donnie Darko was set. And perhaps if this had been taken more seriously rather than being met with a dismissive hand wave uh, by the establishment, and, and if these people hadn't been silenced with lithium and Ritalin and the overprescription of Prozac and other antidepressants in the 80s, uh, which is when obviously Donnie Darko was set, and in the 90s too, um, which, you know, I think opened the way to serious drug habits um, in several key cultural players of that time. Then society would have learned how to cope better with, um, you know, when it was inescapably faced with its own inherent flaws, as it was at the turn of the millennium. Um, you know, everything that we've said about nine eleven and the millennial tension that we're feeling, and it wouldn't have become so pervasively dysfunctional, selfish, and self-destructive, which is what we're seeing now. And of course, like while the film is set in the 80s, it was written and directed and filmed through the lens which looks back through the decade that followed it. So whether consciously or not, um, this is the only way that Kelly could have made the film, was looking at it in the light of what had passed since that film yeah. was set. You know, This film is as much about the world in 1999 as it was written, or 2000 when it was filmed, as it is about the world in 1988. And of course, now, after the second Iraq war, the war against terror, cyber warfare, the end of privacy, Brexit, the Trump's presidency, Johnson's prime minister in the UK, COVID, and now the Russian-Ukraine war. I mean, you know, long-haired guys dressed in flannel shirts with ripped jeans and Converse Chuck Taylor all-stars screaming about being pissed off at their parents and why no one likes them at school. It kind of seems kind of cute, really. Um, But the paradigm has shifted and it always will shift, just like it did at the end of the 80s, just like it did at the beginning of the millennium. And it will shift again. Um, What we have to do is just hope that we can make something better, um, do what we can do. And I think that a better world is what Donnie Darko thought he was creating when he goes to bed and is hit by the jet engine at the end of the movie. And it raises the question, did he have to die at the end there? Uh, I mean, I'm not so sure. We talked a bit earlier about how Roberto Sparrow could have been a survivor as a living receiver, which shows that not all of them have to die. Um, your Frank beeps the horn as he pulls away from the house to try to warn Donnie. Uh, K- Kelly has said that that is what he's doing. He's not beeping at Elizabeth, he's beeping at Donnie because there's some weird memory left there from the tangent universe. So why does Donnie go to bed laughing and allow himself to be killed? 
Um, I mean, while I said that Kelly hates the suicide interpretation and he said that it's wrong, I think that it is a spectre that hangs over Donnie Darko. Yeah. That at the end he does kill himself. I think, but if we're talking about it, like the way we, we mentioned how the, the film is most successful in its emotional journey, then that is a huge part of that, is the fact that he sacrificed himself. And I don't think it would be anywhere near as good if he didn't. No. And he willfully sacrifices himself. Yeah. And it's like, I think. It, it, it's just, if you're talking, if you kind of step out of the film, maybe maybe within the uh, the mechanics of the film, he didn't technically have to sacrifice himself. But if we're looking at the film as a film that yeah. needs to be a good film, then... With a satisfying ending. Yeah. Um, that you can wallow in <laughs> and enjoy. Exactly. Uh, then yes, he did have to die. He, I, think, I think that that's right. And I think that it's... I don't think that film, this film would ever have got away without confronting that idea because it's a film about mental health and it ends with the kid deciding that he has to die. I have an interpretation of the movie, um, which I've sort of named It's a Terrible Life, uh, which is the reverse of It's a Wonderful Life. I see what which you is did there. Synchron- yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's clever. It's an interesting synchronicity about It's a Wonderful Life because obviously there's the idea of Harvey, the um, the film that was the 1950 film, which is about a guy who has a friend who's who's a, a imaginary six foot rabbit. rabbit. And spoilers for this 73 year old film, other people in the end can see the rabbit as well. So that it's real, just as uh, Kelly's interpretation of Frank is that Frank is real. Yeah, Frank is a being moving within a fourth dimensional construct. But basically, I think Donnie is given a 28-day opportunity to see everything in his life that will go wrong if he doesn't die on the 2nd of October. Um, you know, his parents are become increasingly unhappy. Gretchen dies. Frank dies. You know, the, 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 you know he floods the school. Um, so Frank, in this interpretation, is the angel, is the angel that shows him this life, except unlike with The Beautiful Life, where he's showing him that, obviously, the world's a lot better with him in, what Frank is showing Donnie is that the world isn't as good with him in. And I think that he he sacrifices himself in the end for a better world. Um, And it's a bit extreme, and it does lead us back to the Messiah interpretation. But I think that it's an unavoidable conclusion that you will come to watching this film with any sort of emotional level. Yeah, because there's the the whole bit, obviously, with the um, when he comes out of the cinema and it's like, last temptation of Christ. Exactly. It's a bit on the nose, but... It's it's very on the nose. (laughs) It's there. But the, the, yeah, it, it is there, and and the, the, there's um, you know the, there's lots of hints towards him um, being the Messiah throughout throughout as well, and um, you know I I don't know if you know that there's one interpretation that could say that like Jesus Christ was a living receiver or something like that, you know, um, which I I don't really like the messiah the messiah theory in Donnie Darko. But I mean, I suppose that there's there's so many other archetypes within this film it like it is built of that of sort of suburban american archetypes isn't it and one of them has to be the tragic the tragic hero it's kind of it's what it's made of it's the it's the the very stuff that the film is made of and it it just wouldn't work without yeah sorry donnie and sorry rose (laughs) eddie samantha and elizabeth and you know and and sorry richard kelly (laughs) yeah Sorry that you never made a good film ever again. It's a bit harsh. What if he's listening? 
I, well, he can he can make a good film, and he's I'll a, he's a producer. He's produced a lot of films. I've not seen any of them, but he's, he's has he produced a lot of films, or has he produced one or two? He's films? produced some films, some, and have they been good? I don't know. I've not seen them. Well, but, I, I think, I, I yeah, okay. I mean, I don't think he's done anything for the last 10, 12 years. But that's that's interesting though, because it brings us on to I think like what the, what the future of Donnie Darko might be, because he has been talking recently about something big that he wants to do with Donnie Darko. Um, you know, whether it's continuation. I mean, I think that Donnie Darko would actually, I think that they could do a really good reimagining of it as a TV series, you know, like uh, Lindelof did with Watchmen. I don't want them to. I think they should leave it the fuck alone. I didn't want them to with Watchmen, but they did it in a way that was surprising. Yeah, originally. I guess so. I guess so. I mean, the fact is that now Richard Kelly's career is based on IP. Yeah. He hasn't made a good movie for 20 years. What's IP? Sorry. Intellectual property. Right. Okay. Yeah. So the, he doesn't actually own the intellectual property to Donnie no. Darko, but I think it, obviously it lives in his head and that's where it came from. I think that his career might now be to do something with that. He's also talking about a continuation of Southland. Tales, yeah. Like part, parts one to three or something like that. That are each two hours like long. Which sounds like an awful idea. Yeah. Let's not do that. But um, but yeah, so this is what he's looking at now. He's obviously exploring his intellectual properties, looking at Donnie Darko. He's looking at Southland Tales and wondering if there's going to be a continuation of it. I mean, Southland Tales was bad. I tried. I really did try to like it. Yeah, but, I mean, if you um, remember when we talked about it earlier this week, the, the 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 one good part that I remembered about it was actually from another film. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. how, that's how little I remembered about it. Uh, I must there's... have watched it 10 years ago, though, so I don't really... One of the things about what we were talking about, how they swapped the musical around in the director's cut. Yeah. When you watch the director's cut of Donnie Darko, the music is much more literal as to what's happening on the screen. Yeah. So it starts with that In Excess song, which which has a load of lines about, about you know, it's never tears apart, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And um, then they move the killing moon towards the The, the bit where he's, he's about to k- kill someone, yeah, kill, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the whole thing's very literal, and that is what he does in Southland Tales, yeah. uh, to the point where... Um, Justin Timberlake, who is a soldier in the movie, or perhaps not a soldier, I didn't really get what he was, it's just does a whole dance piece to that Killers song, which says, um, I've got soul, but I'm not a soldier. Yeah. And he just does the whole song while he does a little dance and drinks a beer. And it's just, it's so, so indulgent and awful. Um, so, I, I mean, you know. I don't know. I mean, what's next for Richard Kelly? Apparently, he he's always happy to talk about Donnie Darko. And I've heard him actually interviewed a few times about it on different podcasts and stuff quite recently because it's recently been the 20th yeah. anniversary, hasn't it? Um, and I think, um, I think he realises that it's by far the best thing he's done, but I just don't think he realises why or how he did it. How has your view of Donnie Darko changed as a 41-year-old compared to when you were a 20-year-old? Pretty much as I explained earlier, really, I I feel that it's still... I I don't relate to the character as much, but I still love the film uh, because I find it 
well, it's a brilliant film. It's a beautiful film to watch. It's it's got a great soundtrack. It's a a, a beautiful world to inhabit for two hours, you know. So uh, I don't think any. I don't think I relate to it as much. I don't have this. It doesn't have the same impact. But I still think it's an amazing piece of work. Do you think that you relate to it now for nostalgia, or you know, for, for both the first time you saw it and for the time at which you first saw it? Yeah. Or 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 do you think that it's um, if you saw it for the first time like last week do you think that it would have the same impact on you as it has done definitely not no um yeah. it, it was of its time and it kind of it, it's almost like a bookmark in a particular period of my life when i felt a certain way and the way it made me feel even though i felt bad a lot of the time then the way that made me feel was because it like you said it is inherently a fantasy it is inherently the idea that this very troubled person has some purpose and 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 has some kind of you know so it's a, a very much like a teenage fantasy isn't it where you're the main character yeah. and everyone else is i don't know it, it it's it, it doesn't give me even though it's a melancholy feeling it doesn't give me a bad feeling it isn't a feeling that's unpleasant it's a, a pleasant melancholy um which feels almost cathartic um and i look back on it and i almost feel I'm glad that I don't relate to that anymore. Because if I yeah. kind of still did as a 40-year-old, it, it wouldn't be good, you know. So um, it feels like it's nice to look back on and think I'm no longer there. What can people watch that's similar, that's better than the director's cut and better than Shitty Dark? So we've mentioned American Beauty. That was one. I, I've wrote a few of these down Um this week american beauty is another one that gives you that kind of melancholy and it's very beautiful to look at and another one that we watched at the cinema together as well uh, although yeah. there were other people involved as well but anyway um so one that i think is very similar to the point of i think that they probably wanted to make something similar to donnie darko and the studios were like we need another donnie darko is a <laughs> film called chum scrubber i don't know if you've seen that i've not seen that it's one, got no. that guy who played billy elliott in it it's all right it's not got any of the sci-fi element of Donnie Darko, but it's got the same kind of flavour to it. It's got sort of similar colouring and it's kind of a bit um, sort of, what's the word for it? Uh, like magic realism kind of thing going on. Uh, yeah. It's quite a beautiful film and the bits of it seem quite profound, even though actually there's, it's kind of got no depth. Um, it's worth a watch. I haven't watched it in years. It's worth a watch. It's got some good music in it. Um, another one would be Brick. Um, yeah, that's Ryan that's Johnson's film. That's the one which is like almost a a hardboiled detective film set in a high set school. In a high school, and it, yeah. it's not really anything like Donnie Darko, but in a way, it is. I kind of associate it, and I, it it kind of made me think like um, one of the you know in, in 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 researching this and thinking about Donnie Darko for the first time in a while, it made me realise that one of my favourite types of film is the the high school weird kind of thing where Heather's. Heather's being a great example. Um, mm. The Virgin Suicides is one of my all-time yeah. favourite films. And that's it's, it's films that are set in that kind of high school time uh, or in a high school, but they've got like a, a slight kind of twist on it that's weird or sad or strange. And even Napoleon Dynamite is an example of that. You know, it's a high school, yeah. but it's like a subverted version of the high school. And I think that from that, like when you think about the high school as being the most emotionally charged period of your life when things are so extreme and things are kind of being imprinted into your brain you know sort of that like the way that you see the world and everything is being sort of your brain is being imprinted upon and so that the almost seeing these kind of 
stories play out in a high school that are a fantasy that work out sort of better than it was when you were at high school, you know? Uh, yeah, you know, th- particularly with stuff like Dreams or the Virgin, uh, sorry, uh, Brick or the Virgin Suicides. It had a f- has a feeling of dreams, you know, because yeah. it's a familiar setting um, cast into sort of an unfamiliar story, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, and um, it's like, they're, they're, I mean, Donnie Darko is, is like a kind of... Um, almost like a hero fantasy isn't it so you can imagine like that being a teenage boy imagining that he he yeah. gets the girl and then dies tragically and stuff and gets revenge on all the teachers he doesn't like and all the people he doesn't like and stuff yeah and like that is that's like a nice world to inhabit sometimes again sort of the the high school where it's a bit more interesting than the fucking boring high school that you went to it, it's also the reason that i think a lot of films that are similar to donnie darko aren't very good or i don't like them i, I was trying to think of an example of one that has like a similar kind of idea to it but set not with teenagers in a high school and maybe i think wanted you know the film it had um james mcavoy and angelina jolie and um it's based on a comic and um it's just not very good but it's got that thing of you know a guy he's he's meant he's you know got mental health issues he has panic attacks um but it turns out that the panic attacks are actually his sort of nervous system waking up and it gives him sort of like a, a special ability you know and so then he's recruited by these people and he becomes a bit like the chosen yeah, one yeah, you know, yeah. like donnie darko and and it subverts the office rather than the high school and it's all right it's just not very good you know i think the thing is that like we said a few times, one of the weirdest things about Donnie Darko is that it works. Yeah. You know, it shouldn't work. The, the bits aren't quite right, but somehow <laughs> it does. And that's one of the most interesting things about it. There isn't really anything else like well, it. Well, there's um, there's a couple more, actually, that I wanted to Damn. mention. So something that... Prove me something wrong. That, something that, <laughs> I, that popped into my head when you were describing, when you were talking earlier, was it'd be really interesting to compare um, The Big Lebowski and Donnie Darko. Yeah, I was thinking something because, similar. Hudsucker Proxy as well. Yeah, because they've got that like almost, you know, sort of, it, it, again, it creates the world, the self-contained world, and you've got this kind of everyday character that becomes a hero and they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily have a lot of agency, but they're being kind of, things are happening that are kind of forcing them, forcing the hand. So that's that's one uh, thing. So another one is uh, Under the Silver Lake, which is quite a recent film. And I've not seen that one. That's the most recent of all the films that I've uh, I've got here. Um, and that is really, really good, but a lot of people hate it. And it's like, um, it's similar to Donnie. It's not, it's not uh, set in a school, but it's it's got that whole idea of uh, a, a person who, it, it's almost like it's a film about someone who loves Donnie Darko. And, oh, and so the, yeah, yeah. The, you've got someone who's who's sort of seeing patterns emerge everywhere and looking for the patterns and looking for the and it's it's again set in this nice like self-contained world and it's like that, that's made me think of a beautiful mind. I've not seen that. It's Russell Crowe, isn't it? Yeah, and, and he um, he um, is a genius. He sees the patterns and stuff, and he has an imaginary friend, and he lives this kind of double life oh, right, uh, where okay. he has this he has this he has this mission that he has to undertake, um, and it's about mental health as well. Um, I, I, that was full of spoilers for, yeah, it, for people. Thanks, uh, but, but um, yeah. yeah, but um, and it has a fantastic soundtrack. Right, um, I'll have to check that one out because uh, yeah, it's really it's really powerful and, film. And there's one. one more that I just want to mention, um, somewhat flippantly, is that if you want to watch a film with Maggie Guinness, yeah, if you want to watch a film with Maggie Guinness, <laughs> go on. If you I'm want, wait here till you if you it. want to watch a film with Maggie <laughs> Gyllenhaal and uh, a person called Frank in a weird outfit, then watch the film Frank. 
which is nothing like Donnie Darko, but it's called Frank. Maggie Gyllenhaal. Get, get, I will get. watch anything with Maggie Gyllenhaal. There you go. And she plays uh, synthesizer in this one as well. So it's got Excellent. it's got a bit of everything. It's got something for everyone. Brilliant. Um, and I just wanted to talk a bit about the music again, because um, obviously I'll link to the soundtrack here, but the, the choice of the songs as well, the one that I wanted to single out is one that we haven't discussed because it's not an 80s song, but it was For Whom the Bell Tolls uh, with Carmen Day and Steve Baker. Um, it's used to denote death in the movie. Uh, so it's when Frank takes off his mask in the cinema. Oh, yeah. it's, the it's at the very end of the film. It's one of the most beautiful pieces of music that I've ever, ever heard. Uh, I'll put a, a separate link, separate to the soundtrack, into the show notes so that people can Because it's not hear. on the soundtrack that you can buy, is it? No, and it's not on Spotify. And the first uh, comment under in on YouTube, which is the video I'll link to, is uh, Spotify is empty without this song. <laughs> and it, it, it's true. And and because I got into just listening to that song over and over and over again because it's so beautiful and atmospheric. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Any books? So we, you mentioned the Donnie Darko book. Um, I wanted to mention Time Loops uh, by Eric Guargo, obviously yeah, for obvious yeah, reasons. Yeah. Um, anything else that you'd thought of that, that sort of inhabits a similar world to Donnie Darko? I hadn't. You've surprised me with that one. I didn't think of that. Well, no, you haven't surprised me because you, you, yeah. But yet I am still surprised. Um, no. That's the kind of guy I've I not am. thought of any, to be honest, even though I've read tons of books that probably are relevant. Um, I've not really thought I had time to think of any. There's probably 10 sat downstairs on my shelves that I could recommend <laughs> yeah. to people. But I mean, I haven't got all that much. I mean, yeah, the short stories of Philip K. Dick, I think, are probably yeah, relevant to, to some of this. I mean, they're relevant you know, the to way, almost the, everything we talk about. Yeah, there, there's a lot of sort of reality shifting, uh, time travel, um, that kind of thing. Um, I kept thinking of the um, short story that Total Recall was based on, we'll remember Free it for your wholesale, um, and the way that that is sort of playing with reality and the memories of someone else's life, you know, and it, having a purpose and all that kind of thing it kind of came in. But I think that it just comes back to what we were saying, which is that I think that Donnie Darko is really unique and I don't think there is much else like it. And I think that if you want to watch Donnie Darko, watch Donnie Darko, the theatrical cut, and um, and don't go looking for things to sort of scratch that itch. If you want to find us at Vase, we're there on Twitter and Instagram at vase and then vase spelled backwards so that's at v-a-y-s-e-e-s-y-a-b uh, importantly Bandcamp. um we've talked about this over and over again but that's the only way that we make money for the podcast is if you uh buy that soundtrack uh, made by buckley here mm. and um we really appreciate it for everyone who does that um our website is www.vase.co.uk um, I would go there if you're looking at the show notes because a lot of the show notes get cut off quite often. I get really annoyed about that. If you look at them on Apple or something, they get cut off. But they're there in all their glory, as God intended them, on our website. Um, you can email us with any ideas, thoughts, anything like that um, at vaseinfo at gmail.com. Yeah, please do. Are, please do get in touch with us because we, uh, we... We like it. We, and you might there might be things for you. If you get in touch with us, they might be you might be rewarded. That was creepy. Um, the um, we're on Mastodon as well. I, I do post on there, but I I don't know if anyone's listening. Uh, so please also follow, rate, review. Um, the the best thing you can do for us, um, apart from buying the soundtrack, is to give us a five star review and write a few nice comments about us because that gets more people to 
listen to us um, and that is what we want we want people to hear we want people to listen so share with a friend help us reach people that need us uh, share with an enemy um, you know you, you might find a friend that was an enemy that's a really that's a beautiful beautiful way of, of putting it that's really nice um, is it time for me to pose a question to you Hein pose away pal pose away so I'm wondering it's a two part question first part who of the Donnie Darko characters, would you like to have as a guest on Vase? Well, for the supernatural qualities, I'd like Frank. And plus his voice would sound really cool on the podcast. But for a good time, it would be Eddie Darko. Yeah, I'd go Eddie. There's, I'd go I'd yeah, go for the no dad. Um, get a beer in him. Yeah. And just get him yeah. talking and you'd have a great time. Yeah. He'd, he'd, probably, he'd probably divulge the secrets of the universe to you eventually I mean, anyway. I, I, I thought maybe Monotov might be good, but it's too dry. He is pretty dry. He's pretty dry. Uh, like he, he's quite intense. I think there's there's probably enough intensity on this podcast already without monitor. We need Eddie Darko to settle things down to to, to, to lighten bring the mood. us back down to earth. Yeah, I mean, I was considering <laughs> yeah. Sparrow, but she doesn't really talk a lot, does she? No, she's very whispery. Yeah, and if Frank came on, I'd want him to use his big Frank voice, yeah, not his weird, little whispery. Yeah, uh, have you ever seen a portal? Yeah, voice. Um, so my second question is, if I were to be crushed in my sleep by a jet engine which um which character of Donnie Darko would you choose to replace me as a co-host <laughs> uh, um, who could f- I mean like like the thing is it would probably have to be Monotov because right, okay. then, then I, I, we'd lost half of the intensity from the podcast we'd need to sort of amp it up again yeah I mean I, I, I could go um I could go rogue, you know, uh, get one of the bullies or oh, something. Yeah, the Seth Rogen bully. Yeah, the the, the pretty much silent one. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not Seth Rogen's best performance. I could have Frank as a co-host, but I think it would get annoying. Yeah, you wouldn't want that. You wouldn't want and that. And he doesn't really talk a lot of sense. He talks in riddles, you know. I, I think I need someone more, yeah. more sort what of... About, uh, what about Cunningham? I mean, no, he, he's I, not I, got the greatest... Uh, like. <sighs> We don't know Criminal whether in, whether in the whether he was only a paedophile in the tangent universe. Oh, we do because Richard Kelly clears that up for us on one of the websites. Does he? What does he say? Uh, he he um he was overcome by guilt and it, killed himself it was the on guilt. the golf course. Right. Okay. So yeah, maybe not. The, the maybe not cunning. But anyway, um, we better shut up and uh, <laughs> wrap this up. So really, Frank is an echo of a bunny man. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah, exactly. So interesting. Very fucking clever.